From a data strategy, what we want to be doing is generating data in a marketplace to feed back into the engine. But to begin with, we want to make sure we've got enough historical data and information from your business. And, and it does tend to be unstructured, right? So it can be structured in different silos, but those silos never really come together into something cogent. Today, we're joined by Phil Bird, the perfect channel founder and ex-director. We're talking about the fact that whilst lots of companies have disparate data sources and trying to generate data and a data strategy that can take them forward, it's just as important to know where you've been. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you some news and opinion. On today's show, joining me is Hayley. It feels like it's the first, it's not the first podcast of spring. The first podcast of spring was Tuesday, but this today feels like the first podcast of spring. It's a bit warmer and everything feels good today. Yeah, it's a good day, although it's warm in the morning and sunny and you're like, oh my gosh, it's lovely. And then it's just kind of raining now, but you know. Oh, is it? Oh, we haven't got that. Haven't you got that where you are? Mm. No, it, it's, it's pouring down here. <laughs> where I live. It's <laughs> probably on its way it over, good lovely. to know. Yeah, exactly. But it's lovely. Where, uh, it was lovely this morning anyway. How's your week going? Yeah, it's good. It's been mm-hmm. a good week. Oh, do you know what it is? It just feels nice, doesn't it? Now it's just like getting a bit warmer. It's sunny. Um, things are starting Lighter to get a little bit evenings. more back to normal. Yeah. I, oh, is that is the best thing when it's not dark in the evening. And everyone's got like that little bit of a countdown on. Not long now, so we can go and have a drink or go and sit haircut. in the garden. A yeah, haircut. <laughs> See family. Yeah. I'm talking about going in the garden to have a drink and you're uh, with friends and, and you're like, just see family? <laughs> things that matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my Anna. sister lives four miles away. My sister lives four miles away. Um, every Friday, um, we tend to go and see my nephew in the park because uh, he comes with his dad. Um, and that's like, it's just weird. Like the park, the playground in our village is quite obviously like an adult socializing area where yeah. people with kids are like, get on the swing so I can talk to someone. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> All the parents just being like, oh, hi, yeah, how you doing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All the parents are just desperate for a bit of socialising. Uh, go yeah. on, kids. Get on that swing. Get on that. Get on that roundabout. Come on. Go crazy. Let go wild. <laughs> let loose. You, do. you walk past and you just see you see small crowds of adults all with coffee, all just having a conversation. Yeah, they've got the right idea. I mean, some would disagree. Uh, yeah, well, fair enough. I'm all anyway. for it. Anyway, today's interview, uh, we've got Phil Bird. He's the founder and exec director of Perfect Channel. Uh, We'll hand over to the interview, and when we come back, myself and Hayley will have some commentary. So this morning, I'm chatting to Phil. Phil, you are the exec director, rather, and founder at Perfect Channel. How are you this morning? Not too bad at all. It's a a sunny day, so that always puts a little spring in my step. Um, It is. good on yourself. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm fine. It, it, It is a lovely... I'm looking out the window and it's just blue sky, not a single cloud out there, which is probably lulling us into a false sense of security. Yes, I won't be taking my shorts out just yet, David. <laughs> I don't think. So, look, tell us, tell us very quickly, who are Perfect Channel? Okay, we're um, we're a business that um, really uh, delivers digital sales channels in a B two B space at an enterprise level. So, these are typically businesses that um, that trade cross border, for example, um, with relatively complex product types so not for example just 
um, A4 paper or something, but something with a, a lot of depth to it. Uh, and and a, bit, a bit more on that, really. So we're creating a digital sales channel. We're moving sales online for these businesses uh, in two different kinds of markets, either a one-to-many market. So that's like a seller looking to access their customers digitally, build up some data and data strategy and work out how to how to really sell things properly or a many-to-many market, which most people think of automatically when you talk about B2B, which is many buyers and many sellers. So we operate in both those spaces, um, predominantly, I guess, in the one-to-many because these are much easier opportunities to articulate and, and get going and uh, it's much easier to derive a, a value proposition for them. Um, but the two things that we do, so two different types of customer, two different things we do, we do something called price discovery or price formation. So it's a way of... Um, creating competitive tension between buyers and sellers and work out what the right price is for a particular good at any one time. Mm. And we do that through lots of different things, um, but fundamentally auction theory. And the second thing we do is um, uh, something called trade formation. So you know that, that price formation is trying to optimize a price between a buyer and seller when a transaction is going to happen. So I want to buy something from you, David, you want something from me. And we're having a, a digital discussion about what the right price for that is. Um, but the bit before that is working out kind of who to sell what to at what time in order to get the best outcome. And the best outcome, there's another two things, the best outcome. One of them could be the best price, so price optimization, the best profit or margin. And the second thing is selling everything. So if it's a perishable goods, you know, you might not want to get the best price for half of it. You know, you might want to sell all of it because ultimately it has a short shelf life. So I don't know if that does a good job, but um, lots of different things for different types of customers. Perhaps an example might might help to, to shine some light on this. When you say moving sales online, it suggests that these are maybe traditional businesses who haven't had a, a digital channel previously, or is is that being too simplistic about this? I think, I think, um, yeah. I mean, traditionally, I guess they would do things bilaterally, so arrange sort of by contract or program sales. So they might have country managers who talk to their customers, and they put together a, a, a contract. They may have some digital presence, right? So, you know, most businesses are starting to work out. Now, my customer wants to be able to see where an order is and have a look at my accounts and that kind of thing. So they might have like a sort of portal uh, and they might have a price list uh, on that portal. But these are much more sophisticated systems which are looking at sort of working out what the right price is, dynamic pricing, if you like, in, a, in every, any given situation. So it really is a sort of next level, next generation digital sales channel. So when you're talking to these businesses, do the majority of them have mature tech departments um i think they 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 have a, a sort of um, an it strategy so yes they'd definitely be looking to enable things inside their business to create an efficiency what they might not have so much of is a good data strategy uh, and a way of feeding that data strategy with kind of um, information about what's going on in the market out there um, so you might think about logistics pricing. You might think about, you know, whether or not there's excess supply in the market or, you know, excess demand. You might be thinking about, you know, macroeconomic effects on the market. So understanding, for example, the effect of Brexit on logistics and what that does to my products at any given time in, in sort of more real time. So I think, you know, everyone's everyone's been on that journey of kind of efficient, internal efficiencies. This is more a kind of external efficiency type approach, like how your business interacts with with other businesses and less about that kind of IT, traditional CIO IT strategy bit. 
Yeah, no, look, the reason I asked that is I was having a conversation last week with a couple of colleagues and, and one who is kind of saying, you know, a lot of organizations have got data, but it's unstructured and they don't want to air their dirty laundry, but perhaps they should certainly post pandemic. And then I, I spoke to someone else who said, no, no, I think most organizations have got a grasp of what data they've got and, and they're generating it. They just don't really know what to do with it. And I thought that was quite interesting because it was two slightly different views and, and I suppose you're out there talking to to SMEs, to enterprise businesses that maybe don't have massive tech departments, and this is fairly new territory for them. And and where are the you know where where are the areas where your digital strategy and data strategy rather is really focusing? Well, I think you know I think um, I think there is a lot of disparate data sources, and this is one of the problems that we. Um, addressed to begin with when we started thinking about um, machine learning and how we can sort of uh, enable our marketplace to be more intelligent. Obviously, it's that whole data in piece really feeds it. So from a data strategy, what we want to be doing is generating data in a marketplace to feed back into the engine. But to begin with, we want to make sure we've got enough historical data and information from your business. And it does tend to be unstructured, right? So it can be structured in different silos, but those silos never really come together into something cogent. Um, so we built something to solve that problem because, you know, it is a big problem. We built a machine learning framework, which we call data quality framework, um, which sort of ingests data from different sources and puts it together in something which we can use for our marketplace. So... Yeah, I think that problem is quite prevalent, like data and data structure and fixing it is like super difficult. So the best way is to just go around it and, and try and ameliorate that with, with technology to begin with. But it's kind of like knowing where you've been, making sure all that data we can use and then kind of setting out a roadmap for where do we want to go? What data do we want? What data do we need? What can we get now in the short term, medium term and long term to create basically a business benefit, uh, you know, some kind of efficiency, some kind of... Um, yeah, I think yeah, it's definitely around um, how can my business create more value for my customers. Ultimately, is is where we want to be thinking of that data strategy piece being used. And look, you talk there about short, medium, and long term. A lot of these businesses might be adopting a, a new, wholly new way, I suppose, of of going about working here. Uh, and, and typically, if you're breaking processes and putting them back together and, and looking at how data might help that organization it might take time it might take time to see results right uh, a lot of people talk about when Absolutely. you put data in place and start building a data machine at scale in enterprise that you know you it can be 18 months before you see kind of a hockey stick curve shape um now i'm not saying it might be it's not going to be necessarily as dramatic as that but what what kind of time scale do you think you're, you're looking at to really get benefit from from a data strategy for most businesses that aren't say a huge enterprise where they've got lots and lots of technology and how do you keep that sponsorship like going that's a good question david which i guess is why you do this podcast um so i think the first thing is you know we've got some algorithms that we've tuned across different marketplaces that can work on um, quite good data sparsity and as your data feeds into it they become better more relevant so you can get going straight away practically it's just how much efficiency that brings and, what, and to sort of get to a point where you're really starting to see some benefit, it's probably six months to 12 months of, of using this marketplace and having enough time series data for you to start looking at trends, because that's what we're trying to do is work out what, what's happening, what's the trend in the marketplace. It's really important at the moment, actually. I mean, it's um, there's two things that are making this really important. Obviously, the macro 
macro situation with COVID means that, you know, how you buy and sell things is, got, is super dynamic at the moment. Your supply chains are all over the place, perhaps. So you need to be very, very responsive to what's going on in the market. And um, and so, you know, that data, even like last week's data about the market, you can start to leverage that. And from our perspective in the UK as well, we have things like Brexit. So, you know, like how long does it take me to get my goods to, say, France or Germany or, or somewhere else? And, and how can I use that data to make me work out where should I should be selling things um, to get the best value again, back to that efficiency value? Like perhaps I'm always selling my apples to France, right? And uh, suddenly it's going to take uh, two weeks for my apples to arrive at France where you're not going to have very good apples if they're sat in the lorry for two weeks, especially if it's a sunny day like this. So we might know from our marketplace, okay, we, we think that you should sell these in Spain. There's, there's good demand signals there. And then the marketplace is generally attached into like the ecosystem. So you'll know, for example, logistics too. So if I'm always selling to France, I might not, A, I might not think to sell to Spain and B, I might not know how to sell to Spain. So what you want your marketplace to do is be connected into the ecosystem so you can find out people that are going to transport your good to Spain to you, how much it's going to cost so that you can start that pricing discussion with the Spanish buyer knowing you know what your, your kind of landed price or your, your you know the total price of the transaction uh, that's going to cost you to get your products from a to b and, and that kind of thing so yeah i guess i hope that answers your question I, absolutely but i suppose that, that it's interesting isn't it because we're looking at the kind of the b2b markets traditionally you have got quite a long lag time from from adoption to to seeing results and again it's that thing of how do you how do you keep a business, especially as a consultancy? How do you keep how do you keep a business sponsor on board? You know who who are you talking to in that business? Whose ear do you have to have uh, access to to really make sure that this this is successful and has the time and the space to to, to produce results? This, this is definitely not an IT project. Um, so uh, the eyes and ears are not your CIO, uh, your CEO, and your CFO or your CCO, if you've got a chief commercial officer, you're looking at someone who's trying to work out, you know, how, how looking at someone with that kind of more financial view of, of the world. Um, like I say, for example, pricing is the thing that drives every com- company's profitability. And this is a pricing resolution system, right? This is dynamic pricing. So it has to have that level of sponsorship. But you, you don't go into this without a key set of KPIs, right? And those KPIs are there for two reasons. One is so that we can communicate to the customer how things are going. And that's one of the ways that you can kind of foster that sponsorship is what are the KPIs? How am I doing against them? How, how measurable am I? And the other thing is we want to be able to say from our, from our digital marketplace or our, you know, our digital sales channel, how effective are we being there as well, right? So, you know, like have we got enough people and participation, enough buyers in that space to create the right pricing? Do we need to go and find more uh, and, and those sorts of things where you can tell a business, hey, you've got not enough buyers here to, to, to really, you know, drive the right pricing or you've got, you know, not, you've got, you've got, you know, too, too much stock or you're selling into the wrong country. You know, these are really important uh, aspects of how you run your business. So it's a case of setting up a framework to communicate those and having a good set of tools that produce that information in an easily digestible way. Right. You don't want a long report. You just we have a KPI like we call it marketplace index, how are we doing? And then you can disaggregate that to work yeah. out you know, what the cause and effect of whether you're doing well or, or not so well is. 
It's, it's interesting that you say this is definitely not a technology project because because increasingly I'm talking to people and they're saying, you know, a, a chief digital or chief data officer, rather, chief data officer is coming under pressure from a CIO within an organization. A CIO is, is kind of being asked to change processes, see results uh, by the board. And there's a slight tension, I suppose, between those two roles. It, it almost sounds like what you're saying reflects that to a certain degree. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I mean, I mean, ultimately, you know, we're like a, a front door for a business. Okay, so whether and that's a really like their sales channel. So if that's not working, it nothing else is working, right? So I think, um, you know, there's a, there's always um, a reticence, I suppose, to 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 give control of that front door to a third party. So it comes back down to this sort of build versus buy type decision and how important. Um, this kind of technology is and then we go back to data and it's my data and how important is my data I, I want to own it uh, you know and I want to be in control of what's happening um, so I think you know from an internal IT strategy perspective there's a strong bias to build this yourself right um, but what you don't get from that is the thing that you know we keep going back to in terms of what we do which is you know we've been doing this for like many, many years, we've seen markets in different levels of maturity, different levels of sophistication. Um, we've seen what affects the types of tools we have applied to a market. So it's not just about being able to build the tools, right? Mm. I mean, that's why I say it's not an IT thing. It's about knowing how to apply those tools. And you need, and, and you talked about this at the beginning, it takes quite a lot of time, right? Um, before you know what's actually happening and you can start to respond to things. So. You know, you might it might take you 24 months to implement something like this internally, and then then you start to get to look at 24 months later. So you're like 48 months in, and you're starting to work out whether or not this is successful or not. And so, really, there's a there's a need to kind of shortcut that, I think. And and, and and this is why it's not really an IT strategy. It's not a build strategy. It's just an implementation of a set of existing set of tools. So look, as we as we look forward to 2021. Um... I mean, Christ, we're already three months into it, but um, it goes quickly, right? <laughs> but what what do you think is going to be on the agenda for 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 Perfect Channel this year? Do you th do you think it's much the same as twenty twenty, or is it as the market moved on slightly? Well, you know, I think I think from the perspective of of our business, um, in the early days, we were seen as sort of like a, a vitamin pill, right? We can do. You know, you're feeling okay, but you could feel a little bit better, right? And uh, you know, like that's a, that's a really hard sell, uh, I think. Um, whereas now, a, a lot of businesses, unfortunately, are in a, a lot of pain uh, given the situation and the markets, and so we're a bit of a painkiller. So for us, really, it's the, the it's un, it's unfortunate the events are, the events have uh, led to this, but it means that you know the adoption of this kind of digital strategy has been superheated. So for us, we see a, a much broader kind of adoption of our technology in different industries, perhaps that were in their nature slow moving to begin with. Whenever you're changing an industry, you know what you're doing is you're disrupting or disaggregating someone, and there's always some resistance to that. So, um, mm. so this this lowers that resistance level as well. You know? Well, look, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thank you for giving up some time and uh, good luck for the, for the year ahead. Thank you very much, David. It's been lovely to chat to you. Thank you for your time too. One of the things he said that I really liked was the fact that you have to know where you've been. There's lots of disparate data sources, but data strategy, whilst you need to generate data 
um, uh, to feed back into it, you need enough historical data and that often isn't structured. So the, the issue, as he said it, was you need to know where you've been. And I think that's something that I've not really considered before. When we talk about data strategy, we think about creating data. But of course, there is so much legacy data and historical data that that organizations haven't necessarily got figured out and talks about it a lot. But I, I just like the way he phrased it. Mm, yeah, that's a real, really nice and interesting way to put it. I think a lot of businesses wouldn't necessarily think about it like that. I also just thought I had a look on their website and I actually think they've got some really impressive clients in, in quite a short amount of time. Um, I mean, it said that they started in 2011, it was founded and looking online, like it's so slick, everything. I don't know if you had mm. a look at their case studies and everything like that. It is super slick. Um, and I was, I was really impressed. Okay, Haley, I'm impressed that you've done a bit of research on the website. This is this is <laughs> it's so next diverse level well. podcasting. Yeah, yeah, it's so diverse as well because like the different types of businesses. Yeah, I was like, I was like, oh, is this? And at first, I was like, they've they've done that as well because I think at first I thought I initially looked and I thought, oh, it's just one type of business maybe. No, it covers off so many different types of businesses and industries. So I was like, wow, brilliant. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting that you're saying about. Um, the range of clients as well, because I kind of got the impression when he was talking that the adoption of, of the kind of strategy that they're implementing had, had been super heated. Um, I think super heated is the, is, the, is the exact word that Phil uses, but he talks about the fact that with, with COVID, we've now entered this age where it's a lot, a lot broader in the adoption. Um, so a lot more organizations who might've been slower moving are looking at data strategies and therefore there's lower resistance as well, because the, I suppose the, the general uptake and the general um, consensus that this is something that businesses need to do is making it easier for someone like Perfect Channel to position and, and say why this is so important to a business going forward. Yeah, I know. It's like fast forwarded it, hasn't it? And made it everyone kind of think, oh gosh, we've got to get this in line. Um, so that's what I mean. So, so many businesses in COVID have, you know, maybe may have struggled, but like for companies like this, you're so right. Like, it's all kind of going in the right direction and everyone else is trying to follow now. So mm. yeah, it's, it's really positive for, for a business like this. But when we talk about acceleration of digitalization, which is what everyone's been talking about through the pandemic, mm. I always kind of, I always fall into the trap of thinking enterprise businesses kind of doing even more, pushing the boundary further. I always think of that forefront rather than thinking, actually there's a whole load of companies actually out there who've, who've never really embraced any of this technology. And this is less about, the forefront and more about leveling up everybody else. How do you mean like, so getting everyone who's not there up and running with it? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 yeah there's like, there's like a, um, everyone's coming up to a certain level. Yeah, exactly. But like, like I feel like there was so many, like you're right because there was so maybe so many companies who aren't really on par, but now it is like, you're right. It's accelerating everyone to be on that same level. Definitely. Um, and if they're not and they need to, they're like, all right, well, our competitors or or other businesses, they're all in this level. They're looking like they're in this legacy age because <laughs> it, it makes a company more attractive as well in many aspects. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. And I suppose makes it easier if they're going to be looking at being a bit more flexible in this new way of working because their systems won't be quite so tied to location. In, in, oh, I don't know, yeah. It, it, it's just it's just it's it is the changing nature of the times and how businesses are having to to, to change the way they operate to accommodate it um oh, I know. they should use 
perfect channel because check them out. It is slick as anything. Slick. Slick is the word. Um, I like the fact... I like the fact that he's talking about the fact that it's not just about building tools. That this isn't a technology problem. It's um, it's about applying tools. It's a business problem. And he mm-hmm. he he points out that it takes time to understand and respond. Twenty four months, and then twenty four months after to see if it's successful. So you are talking about forty eight months worth of investment of time, um, and not just time, but resource as well. Mm. But I think that underlines how much of an investment this is and that maybe that's why up until now a lot of organizations have have not gone down this route um but now obviously that it is critical they're having to make that investment and that that's that can only be a good thing for the for the for the industry because because that is committing a level of spend and a level of commitment to tech for a lot of companies um which which i suppose will drive the market forward for at least the next um four or five years yeah, definitely. I think I think we live in such an impatient culture, don't we? I think businesses want things now, faster, instant results. And yeah, it's so right. I think sometimes you've got to wait until you get the best result out of something and for mm. the real investment to come through, which obviously is common sense in some businesses, but in some other businesses, it's not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Phil, thank you for being our guest on today's show. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back uh, we'll have a little bit of technology news for you. A couple of years ago Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we're going to talk about getting ready for the return to the office. At the top of the show, we were talking about the fact that there was a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of pub gardens, in Hayley's case, and me seeing family <laughs> instead of at playgrounds. Um, but there's an interesting trend going on, right? A strange thing is happening. This is a, an article in The Guardian. A strange thing is happening thanks to the pandemic. Whilst everyone is stuck up from home, some of the country's largest tech companies are snapping up real estate like nobody's business. Um, so this is in, in, in the U.S., Google, for example, last week announced that it was investing more than $7 billion to open new offices and expand data centers across the country. Tech Giant is opening offices and data centers in Atlanta, Pittsburgh, uh, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, as well as Portland, Oregon, Houston, Reston, Virginia, and South Haven, uh, and Mississippi, and will extend expand rather data centers and workspaces in Nevada and Nebraska, Washington State, Detroit, Chicago, Ann Arbor, and Austin. They will keep growing offices across the US, a spokesman for the company said in a Fox Business report. And Google is not alone in the real estate expansion. So it then goes on to reference uh, Facebook, Apple, um, and it's not just the tech giants. Leases are quietly being signed up by companies big and small in downtown suburban areas across the country like Denver, Phoenix, and even San Francisco. So there is this trend that they basically see in a not too distant future where cities return to their normal levels of activity and they're snapping up deals while prices are low. Um, And according to this article, it's not a bet, it's a certainty. Do you really think New York will not be New York or that downtown San Francisco will remain empty? 
Um, so that yeah, another a lot quote. of places they're snapping up, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's a hell of a lot. Uh, we are believers in offices. I think there will be con- continue to be good opportunities, particularly in the markets orientated around innovation, research, and content development. Super interesting. Yeah, and I do. This does boggle me a little bit. Like, I know obviously people. I don't know about you. I like thought after. I mean, this is what is this the second wave or the third wave? I can't keep up. <laughs> it's the third lockdown it's the second wave third lockdown right third lockdown definitely since it's in winter as well i've been thinking oh my god i would love to just get up in the morning get on the train go to work like just a couple of days a week just lovely nice because I, and it's true i can't actually imagine the city not being the city like that little bit of a buzz you get when you walk over the bridge in the morning you know and go to work like it just doesn't make sense that that wouldn't be the same anymore they've got so many buildings there what are they going to do new buildings yeah i mean it's 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 interesting i'm not sure what gene marx's background is who's the guy who's writing this but he talks about the fact that um they also know and i I suppose the they is these organizations that are buying up the office space they also know that an office a workspace a shared environment where humans interact face to face over coffee and donuts is crucial to any business i don't know about the donuts but there we go uh i agree with that all right fair (laughs) enough uh they understand that people working remotely do not connect innovate share ideas debate argue or brainstorm like they do when they're together they get the company's culture of innovation can't be built from people's homes but from a place where people congregate i don't know whether everyone would agree with that i think this year has shown that people can innovate and can collaborate when they're working from their homes i don't disagree that that we're social and that Mm. we want to be like i want to see people Mm -hmm. but i do think that if a company tried to tell you that they wanted you in five days a week, that people wouldn't have that now. Yeah, no, definitely. And I feel like they're pe- if people do offer that, um, I actually, I'm not, I have a friend actually who had an interview and she, she said that she, they wasn't offering flexible working based in London. And I thought, really? After all of this, and she was like, it was a no from me, she said, and they said that they can't hire for the role. And she was like, I wonder if that's one of the reasons. So just being like that, just an example, if, if people are that shut down about that, you know about working from home and having that flexibility people aren't interested no no and it makes no sense on the back of this year this year has proven beyond doubt that companies can work remotely people can work remotely there are benefits to working remotely there are obvious benefits to being in the office too yeah maybe not donuts but you know people do like to see each other people you know the water cooler moments have been harder to have um there is there is stuff missing from working from home that you only get when you're in a in an office space together but it doesn't have to be an extreme it doesn't have to be all in an office or all from home and i think companies i think that there needs to be strong leadership and i think there needs to be some direction and just leaving it to people to decide how flexible they are maybe not may, might not work in the long term but they need to offer flexibility and if they don't offer flexibility i can see people going well no i'm not standing for that anymore yeah yeah definitely and i just think it it completely depends I think it's just, it doesn't need to be set in stone or anything like that. It just needs to be to treat the person in your organization like an adult. When do you want to come in? You can come in whenever you like. If it suits you better mm-hmm. to work in an office, you can do that. If it doesn't, then that's fine. You do that. Because some people don't have the sit up at home. Some people might have been in lockdown and maybe in a flat and they might have been to sit on their bed and work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it might not work for them. But I just think if you start dictating and saying no want you in all the time and things like that people you're right people just won't have that anymore they want 
the freedom of doing what they can yeah and doing what they want to do when they can do it and as long as they're doing the work it's fine and also That's like I, I don't know like if, uh, speaking from my own personal so i i'm i'm not too worried but i'm on the should shield list i don't act like that because i don't I, I like being out and about and i want to see people but yeah. would i want to get on a commuter train if this virus this virus looks like it's not going to go any yeah. anywhere looks like it's going to continue to mutate looks like the vaccines will have to be updated looks like that it's just part of life i don't think that we're going to be in continual lockdown i hope that the world's going to open up again but and we're going to be on top of it because people will be vaccinated but it is going to be out there like the flu is out there um and it does it does um do things to people in a very unpredictable way so would i be happy if i got told that i had to get on like a packed train uh, rush hour when it wasn't really critical to my job no and and i had this yeah. conversation with hr earlier and they were like we're not going to make people come in in rush hour if they don't want to like if you want to come in at 10 o'clock or leave a little bit later or whatever else it is whatever fits your work patterns that's fine and i think a lot of people i think a lot of that's it's, it's even flexibility it's not even necessarily whether you're in the office or out of the office it's when you travel or for what reasons why are you going to the office you know are you going to the office because you're, you know, some people want to get into the office and I can understand this because they're not in great living situations. I'm very lucky to live in a, in a nice detached house. But there are lots of people in bed sits. There are lots of people in yeah. one bed flats or living with people that yeah. don't really know. So it's, it's just got, it's just got to be an awareness that everybody's situations now are very different to where they were a year ago. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think I could work next to my partner every single day for the rest of my life. I'm joking. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, no, I offended my wife by telling her that there was no way we were working in the same room. It was like, we could have an office and then have two desks in it. Like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, yeah. I love you dearly, but the thing is, I would quite like to see you at the end of the day. It's nice being able to say hello during the day, but I also think if we were on top of each other 24-7, that isn't healthy either. Yeah, no, see, this is this is the situation that I have at the moment. And um Although it's actually gone a lot smoother than I thought, I think now it's just like, it's nice. You're right. Say bye in the morning and hello in the it gives evening. You, I think, I think it makes it... a little time apart. It's well, good. it makes it nicer when you spend time together if you haven't spent the entire day already together. Yeah, very true. <laughs> this is we've gone we've gone around the houses here well you know <laughs> it's interesting listening. <laughs> it is interesting to see that tech companies are buying up real space whilst it's cheap. I know. There we go. Anyway, uh, Hayley, thanks for joining me today. We will be back on Tuesday. Oh!